Great job, Emily. Thank you. I just discovered this morning that uh, these guys come from uh, Orange County, and it just happens to be a church that sprang out of Coast Hills Community Church that they're a part of, and that uh, where my son-in-law and daughter attend. And um, I also found out that one of them babysits my grandkids. I didn't even know that. <laughs> so, uh, but wonderful. Also, that you played, I didn't know that, so you guys are going to be up at Hume Lake. Have you been there for years? Or? Um, since 2010, we've been doing different seasons. Very cool. Uh, Michael Anthony and uh, Michelle, good friends. Yes, she worked for me. She, she worked for me. Don't you tell her. Don't tell her. Denny's keeping her eye, his eyes on you. Also, gosh, I was a youth pastor back in 1970 to 76, and we used to go to Hume Lake. And I understand it's changed a little bit since then. <laughs> I don't know why anything would change after 40 years, but that's, uh, that's the way it is. They have electricity. <laughs> and toilets. Yeah. Oh, anyway. It is good to be with you again. And uh, how many of you have been here uh, when I have been teaching before? Both of you, oh, that's great, well, good. It is a, a privilege to be here. It's a good, to, I want to say thank you again for the way in which you are caring for your pastor and his family and during this uh, crazy time. Um, but God has been good and you have been wonderful and I want to say thank you uh, on behalf of Roland and his wife and I'm sure they've expressed the same to you. And let's, uh, let's pray as we... Get ready to look at God's Word together. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people. And I'm reminded that that is really what your church is. It is a gathering of your people. And uh, Lord, as we gather together on Sundays, you call us from every, every angle and every corner of this community to come together and to sing praises and to tell you again that we love you and that we want to serve you faithfully and Lord also to gain perspective your perspective with regards to life and that's why we turn to your word as it feeds us it teaches us it encourages us where we need to be encouraged it challenges us where we need to be challenged and Lord I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that for us and to us and with us this morning we pray that uh, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and uh, once again, a heart that's wide open before you uh, to be the people you call us to be as your ambassadors as you scatter us again outside of this, these doors and beyond these, this parking lot and out in the community where we live. These things we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1923, a very important meeting was held at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Attending that meeting were nine of the nation's most successful businessmen and high achievers and financiers of their time. In attendance that day was Charles Schwab, the steel magnate, and Samuel Insull, the president of the nation's largest utilities company. Howard Hobson, who was the president of the nation's largest gas company. Arthur Cotton, who was the world's greatest wheat speculator. Richard Whitney, who was the president of the New York Stock Exchange at the time and Albert Fall, who was a member of President Coolidge's cabinet. There was also Leon Frazier, who was the president of the Bank of International Settlements, Jesse Livermore, the great baron on Wall Street, and Ivan Kruger, who was the head of the nation's most powerful monopoly at the time. And I imagine if you were to put their resumes together, if you were to assemble all the impressive lists of things that they accomplished, their achievements, their acclaim, you would say that there would be nothing of the rewards that accompanied them beyond, and to say nothing, or to say nothing of the rewards that accompanied those things. And yet, yet, with all the achievements and all the awards and all the acclaim, I think I can safely say that this wasn't enough to give any of these men a sense of lasting satisfaction. And you know how I know that? Because of the way their lives ended. 25 years later, 
we discover that Charles Schwab had died in bankruptcy, having lived the final years of his life on borrowed money. Samuel Insull died a fugitive of justice and penniless in a foreign country. Howard Hobson had gone clinically insane and was institutionalized where he remained for the remainder of his life. Arthur Cotton died abroad, insolvent. Richard Whitney was sentenced to an extended time in federal prison. And Albert Fall was released and pardoned from prison just so that he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, Ivan Kruger, and Leon Fraser all committed suicide. Surprising, to say the least. If not shocking to some degree, I find that each and every one of these men had learned the science of making a living. But I would suggest to you that none may be ever learned the art of experiencing a meaningful life. And you know what? They aren't alone. And there's a lot of people that are still trying to figure that out for themselves. You see, happiness, the happiness that these men, I'm sure, were looking for, the happiness that all of us aspire to, that all of us want, the deep-down satisfaction, if you will, of life that we long for, the peace that we long for, the contentment and the joy, all those things that all of us, in a sense, really would like for ourselves isn't a product of human achievement alone. As much as we enjoy and appreciate the, the acknowledgement, the appreciation, the rewards for all of our efforts, if it was so, I would suggest to you, if it was so, the happiest people on earth would be workaholics. And the reality of that, I think for most of us would agree that that isn't necessarily the case. But as the saying goes, there's a lot of life, a lot in life that money can't buy. Someone said that money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not brains. Food, but not an appetite. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Pleasures, but not peace. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not joy. You see, the problem with human effort and achievements alone is that it's, it isn't that it's bad, but rather that it doesn't go far enough. And by that, I mean that it doesn't go far enough to satisfy our deepest needs. I have a question for you this morning. What do you consider to be among your greatest accomplishments, your greatest achievements? If I was to ask you to write your resume out and write all the things that you are proud of, all the things that you've accomplished, what would be on that list? For some of you, it might be a position that you hold at the present time, the greatest position that you could have ever aspired to. For others, it may be a skill that you've developed or become known for. For others, it may be the salary that you've been able to amass or the freedom that money and time and availability has given you. For others, it may be the awards that you've received or a level of lifestyle that you've attained. For some of you, it's the security of knowing that you don't have to work another day in your life and still be able to do all the things you really want to do. For some of you, it may be the family that you've raised and the success that you've had in doing so. For some, it may be the recognition and the respect that you've earned from your peers. For some of you, it may be uh, the prospects and the probability of knowing with no doubt that you could accomplish even more. For some of you, it may be the feeling of accomplishment just knowing that you did it. You were able to accomplish those things. I don't know what it might be for you. I know that all of us could probably write something, and I know that there are people that you and I know that are probably willing to spend their lives hoping to achieve the things that are on your list to one degree or another. But let me ask you another set of questions, a questions that may go a little bit deeper with that resume of yours in mind. Let me ask you, as I ask myself from time to time, how are things in your personal life? And by that I mean, how are things with the real you, 
when nobody's looking. Like when you're alone in a car, or you're up in an airplane, or you're sitting in a hotel room on the road. Are you personally content? Are you at peace? Not only with yourself, but the people around you and with God. And how about with your friends? Do you have any friends? I mean real friends. Or are they just acquaintances that the circumstances of work seem to throw together and you kind of jumped in on that? And while we're getting this personal, let me ask you about your inner life a little bit. Are you secure with who you are and what you're about? Are you afraid of some things? Are there any habits in your life that are kind of out of control? If we really push on it, kind of, are there any secrets that haunt you from time to time? Or things that you find yourself either now or in the past that you're ashamed of? Are there any worries that just won't seem to go away? That even success doesn't erase? And let me ask you some what-ifs. For instance, what if you lost some of those achievements? What if you lost that title? What if you lost that position? What if you went to a doctor like your pastor did a couple of weeks ago and just to get a checkup and you found out that there was a lump or a black spot on a deal and you discovered that it turned out to be a tumor and it was malignant? What if you had a stroke or a heart attack? As much as all of us want to live, are you prepared? Am I prepared? and ready to die. And finally, is life more meaningful as a result of all that you've achieved? Or are you still, true, till, still too driven to find a way to relax and enjoy it? Charles Swindoll wrote that spending your life trusting in your own achievements alone brings you the glory now but leaves you spiritually bankrupt forever. And I think he was on to something. And I think you know he was on to something when he said it. Apostle Paul knew something of the trap, if you will, of human accomplishments. And he had lived with them most of his life. In his earlier days, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was a high achiever. In fact, he was a high achiever of the worst possible kind. And by that I mean that Saul was a religious high achiever. And at the top of the list of the people that he wanted to impress with all of his personal achievements was God himself. And he took great personal pride in his efforts and accomplishments to do just that. But something happened one day when Saul took a trip to a city called Damascus, and on the way to that city, he was encountered by the risen Christ. And it changed him. It changed his focus. It changed his direction. And it changed his understanding of fulfillment from that day forward. That was the day that he met Christ and found in him and in his grace, the relationship with God and the satisfaction within himself that he longed for but never was able to secure through his own efforts and achievements. And I think that that's what Paul wants to teach us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 3. You've been in a series, where I understand, going through this short little epistle, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi and Today we find ourselves in chapter 3, and I want to kind of unpack a little bit of chapters 3, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 1, or chapter 3, excuse me, verse 1, it says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, 
who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Let's stop right there for a minute. Paul had some enemies in and around the church, the early church, who followed him around and tried to undo the teaching that he was giving, in particular to the Gentiles who had begun to come to Christ. And uh, the teaching that Paul had given to them was that this salvation was by grace alone through faith. It was what he experienced and what, and what the Lord had, in, in, um, had given to him. It was a gift he learned from God that we can never earn by efforts of our own but can only humbly and gratefully receive. And it was to be offered to all people, Paul understood from the command of Christ, to men and women alike, to Jews and Gentiles alike, which was a revolutionary kind of thing. And that no one was excluded from this gospel, this good news that God wanted to extend to them. And these people that followed Paul around didn't like what they heard. They were called Judaizers. They were people in the church, but they were considered Judaizers. And essentially, their teaching was that in order to become a Christian, Gentiles had to become Jews first, and they had to get circumcised, and they had to be able to understand and do all the law before they could ever understand the goodness and the grace of God. And so that was what he was speaking when he calls them he says, beware of these people. Beware of these guys. Beware of them. And he calls them dogs. And the dogs that he's talking about are not beloved pets. They're not like Fifi and, you know, Fido and my little Maggie at home. No, these are pariah dogs that roam the streets where they live and that live off the garbage and they attack people in packs. He says, beware of these people. They're those kinds of pariah dogs with regards to you spiritually. And he calls them evildoers because in their efforts to bring people in their minds closer to God, they're actually driving them farther and farther away from really understanding who God is and what this gospel is about. And then he calls them mutilators, which is kind of, ooh, gosh. And he calls them mutilators because their demand was for men to be circumcised. And because the circumcised that demanded was a, was a, was only a, a surgical procedure that left a mark on one's flesh. But Paul remarks that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't leave a, a mark on one's heart. And Paul says it's only those who are changed from the inside out by this remarkable gift of God and the gift of His Holy Spirit who are really the children of God that he's reminding them that true circumcision is not a physical scar, but a devotion of the heart. And that true worship is not a mere ritual or observance of rules, but an expression of the heart. And that true glory is not a boast about what we've done for God, but really, more importantly, a deep and abiding understanding and appreciation for what God has done in His Son for us. Paul says we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our own efforts, in our own achievements, in our own accomplishments, even if they be religious, in order to try and gain God's favor. And then he goes on to say, for if we could, who in the world had a better resume or any better credentials? Who could have achieved any better accomplishments and secure those kinds of things than I did. Look what he says in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more of them. And then he gives this list, his resume of his past. He says, Gang, I was circumcised on the eighth day. When I was eight days old, I was uh, just as the law required, my parents kept the law right down to the letter of the law. I was born into the Jewish faith and I've known its privileges and observed its ceremony since, since I was a little baby, since I was an infant. And I was part of the people of Israel. I can trace my ancestry back to Jacob himself. I'm pure bled, bread. I am of pure descent. And not only that, he says, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin 
which was the highest aristocracy of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the honored tribe, the favorite tribe of Jacob because he alone was born in the land of Palestine and he was the child of Rebekah, the, the wife that he loved, the only tribe that remained faithful to God through, along with Judah when the kingdom was split, the only tribe along with Judah that remained faithful after the exile when they were spread everywhere and formed the nucleus of the reborn nation of Israel. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul says. When the Jews were scattered, when they went into the diaspora, when they were dispersed around the world, I was among those Jews who went those places but never forgot where he came from. I never forgot my language. I never mingled with the, the foreign cultures. I never forgot my roots. And there was never a day that I didn't long to go back and build Israel again. In regards to the law, he says, I was a trained Pharisee. I was one of those who was called the separated one. And there were only 6,000 of those in all of Israel. I was one of those 6,000. I was one of those people who were the spiritual superstars of Judaism. We think of the Pharisees as the evil, horrible people. But to the Jews, they were the highest echelon. They were the, the brightest stars on the planet as far as Jews were concerned. They were called the separated ones. They had a life that was dedicated to keeping the smallest letter of the law and doing it to perfection. Jesus didn't, wasn't angry at their outward expressions. He was angry at the condition of their hearts and what motivated them to do all those things. That's why he called them out. He says, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. I was one who stood over Stephen's stoning and held everybody's coats while they did it and smiled, realizing that this was exactly what I felt needed to happen. I was the one who instigated the persecution of the early church and followed them around and got, made sure that they got in jail. I saw Christianity as Judaism's greatest threat and I sought with all of my might to eliminate it from my people. And I took joy in it, pleasure in it. And as for my legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Nobody could deny my efforts and achievements. Nobody, Paul said, had better credentials than I did if you could earn God's favor by zeal and your own efforts alone. But look at verse 7. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, or all the things that I once thought that were so important are gone now. Paul says, all my life I've been trying to get into a right relationship with God by efforts and achievements, accomplishments of my own, but in the end, it's, I've discovered it's a dead-end street. A dead-end street. And so I came into this relationship with Christ and I'm now given up trying to create my own goodness or create goodness on my own. And in humility, I've come to God in faith as Jesus told me to, as he met me on the road to Damascus. And in doing so, I have found a relationship with God and a satisfaction within myself that I have never known through efforts of my own. And as a result, Paul says, I have a different perspective today. And I have a different direction in my life today. And I have different pursuits today than I've ever had before. And he outlines three of those pursuits in verse 10. Three of those pursuits that I think apply to you and me today. Paul says this, verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says there's three things that I pursue today, three things that I want, three things that I want to share with you. Here's the first one. Paul says, I want to know Christ more intimately. 
When Paul says, I want to know Christ, he's not talking about knowing him up here alone. He's talking about knowing him here and here and here and here and here and here. <laughs> I want to know him more intimately. I know something of this desire for more and greater intimacy through the teaching and the prodding of my wife. <laughs> my wife. She's taught me about... She keeps teaching me about the importance of intimacy. In fact, she was teaching me again last night when I had forgot it again and again and again. But when Lisa expresses the desire for more intimacy in our relationship, what I've come to realize is that she, among other things, is asking for three primary things. And guys, I have a feeling that your wife has asked you of these very same things. The first one is that she's asking for more of my undivided attention when we're alone. And secondly, she's asking for more of my unguarded affection when we're with others. And thirdly, she's asking for more of my unfeigned or genuine desire to be together with her when we're apart. That sound familiar, guys? Any of you women can identify with that? Have you thought that or said that? You know what? I've discovered that she is really, what she's really asking for is more of me. And in particular, more of my heart. And if I was honest with you, and I'm going to try and be honest with you this morning, I would say that there is a fear in that. And it's a fear, I think, that every guy in here knows what I'm talking about when he hears his wife say something. There is a fear that comes in that. Because we begin to think that if I give more of myself away, there's going to be less of myself for me. Or I'm going to lose myself in the process. And there's nothing scarier to a man than losing himself in the process. Because then I would be exposed. <laughs> but you know what I've discovered? In the midst of my fears, and I've got to tell you, I seem to have to learn this over and over and over again. In fact, I had to learn it again last night. <laughs> I've discovered the more genuinely, the more genuinely I dare to give myself away to my wife the more free and alive and truly happy I am with myself and with my life. It's one of those remarkable paradigm shifts, one of those, one of those deals that God says, you know, you think it's going to be, it's just the opposite of what you think. My kingdom is so different than yours. And you know what? It isn't much different when it comes to you and my relationship with the Lord. Because I don't know if you realize this, when you came to Christ, you got married. There are no single people in the kingdom of God. All of us are married to Christ. We are His bride, whether you're male or... You, you are part of the bride. You're in this covenant relationship. And essentially, what it is that he is asking for between us is more of our undivided attention when we're alone and more of our unguarded affection when we're with others and more of our unfeigned desire to be together when we're apart. In short, he's asking for more of our heart. And you know why? Because whoever or whatever has your heart has the rest of you. Has the rest of you. has the rest of you. You know, so many people think that all the church wants is my money. They're trying to get into my wallet. No, no, no. What God wants is, the, is your heart. Because if he's got your heart, he's got the rest of it. He's got your business. He's got your head. He's got your, he's got, he's got your money. He's got your kids. He's got your your dreams, you got your hopes. He's the Lord. <laughs> That's more than a title. That's a goal. 
A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God a prayer. He said, Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give, you, give up its toys, its distractions. I can't part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide you, uh, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root out from my heart all those things which I've cherished so long, which have become a very part of my living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall my then shall you make the place of your feet glorious. And then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you will be the light of it. And there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, he said, this I pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How much of your heart does the Lord have in this season of your life? In this season of your life. Not seasons ago. Not years ago when you were in Sunday school like the kids were. Not the first year that you came to Christ and everything was new and exciting. How much of your heart does he have in this season of your life? At this moment of your life. Paul says, I want to know Christ. And I want to know him intimately. It's the pursuit of this journey that I'm on. Here's the second one. He says, I want to experience Christ more powerfully. More powerfully. This may come as a surprise to you. But when you and I came in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the goal of that relationship was not primarily for you and I to go to heaven. If that was exactly what God wanted, that was the highest priority, you would have gone to heaven. <laughs> the reality is that when you and I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, what he really wanted to do is to bring about a transformation to make us more like his son, more like Jesus himself. And that involved change. And that change is instigated by the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection and the presence of the Holy Spirit in you and me to change us. And that causes a fear as well. Doesn't it? Because I don't know about, about you, but you know what I've discovered as a pastor with a church is that about 90% of the general population is adverse to change. And you know why I know that in, in, in churches? Because I pastored a church for 20 years, and I could tell you where everybody sat every week, because they sat in the same seats. And if you change anything, it's like, oh, my God, we're going to change. We don't particularly like change, do we? You're messing with my life when you bring about change. And God said, that's what I intend to do. I intend to bring about a change in your life so that you can be increasingly more like Jesus. You know what I also discovered is people fear that because we discover that change always doesn't always happen the way we think it should or the way we like it to. Not always easy. Is it? You ever discover a time in your life where you found yourself somewhere out in a wilderness somewhere in your relationship with God and you thought, what does this have to do with following Jesus? How come it isn't, how come we're not singing the happy songs and, you know, this? Why is this happening? Well, you know what? There are times that we get in wilderness. We think, you know, church people, good people, you know. We think if we're in a wilderness, it's because we've sinned. Want to know something? That isn't always the case. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It's one of those aha verses. It says, 
says, The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by the evil one. Whoa. Do you mean that God could actually lead us into wilderness kinds of situations with the intention of it being positive and with the, test, with the intention of it being testing and could be difficult? Apparently so. Because I, you know what? Jesus didn't sin when he went into the wilderness and he didn't sin to get him there. It says the Holy Spirit led him there. Why? Because there were lessons to be learned in the wilderness that you couldn't learn anywhere else. Because nowhere does God have our attention more than when we find ourselves in places where he really has our attention. And maybe where we can learn lessons that we can't learn anyplace else. And I venture to say all the lessons that we learn and all the reasons for being in the wilderness is for life on the other side of the wilderness for the next season that you're going into. It's a remarkable thing. It's a bit of a scary thing. But you know when you look back on your periods of the wilderness, you say, you know what? I learned some things I wouldn't learn anyplace else. If I had to go through that again, and I've gone through some stuff, you've gone through some stuff, and you've looked at it with some perspective and say, if I had to go through what I had to go through again to get to where I am today, surprisingly so, I might even do it. I might even do it. I think the disciples felt that way. One of the undeniable facts that you read in the New Testament is the changes that took place in the lives of Jesus' disciples after the resurrection. Frightened men became fearless. Timid men became bold. Confused men became men of conviction. Broken men became restored again. Self-serving men became servants of God. And in the process, or as a result, they changed the world. And you know why? Because they knew and believed that Jesus was alive, that he was raised from the dead, that his resurrection meant new ball game, new power, and that power is available to us. They heard and knew that Jesus was alive, and when they heard the word of God in their lives, they yielded to his call. When I was driving up here this morning, I was in I don't know, around, around, right around Biola, I think, and I saw this billboard, and it was for the Marines. And it said, Marines. And, it said, and then in, there's this quote, it said, devoted to a life of courage. I grabbed my pen and I was writing that because I didn't want to lose that one. I almost killed somebody, but that's okay. <laughs> Devoted to a life of courage. Boy, that's one for me to put somewhere where I see it because there's a tendency that I can get just like you can to be afraid and to run away. And God says, no. I want to experience Christ more powerfully. I want to be devoted to a life of courage. You know, it's no different for us than it was for them when we know Christ is alive, when we listen to his commands and heed his call, we begin to change. And sometimes in and through ways that we never would have guessed in a million years. Some of you may have saw the news this last week that Charles, or Charles Colson passed away, 80 years old. And some of you are old enough to remember the story of Charles Colson, the instigator of the Watergate um, break-ins. The, uh, what is he? He was called the hatchet man for Richard Nixon. He took great joy in, in, in being that guy. He was tough. He was honorary. He was an attorney and, a, and a, a Marine, and he just was willing to give his life for a cause that he thought was right, only to discover that it wasn't. 
got indicted, got sent to prison. And on his uh, front porch, on his driveway, the day before he went into prison, somebody confronted him with his need for Christ. And in humility, he received Christ. And over the course of the next two years in prison, God got a hold of this man and began to change him. Remarkably so. He got out of prison. He wanted nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with power in that regard. He gave the rest of his life to this idea of restoring prisons, prison fellowship. Thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women have come to Christ through prison ministries because of Charles Colson. He said, Who would have thought? Who would have thought the most shaming thing of my life would turn out to be something that God could turn around for his glory and that I got to do it? Paul says, I want to experience Christ more powerfully. Here's the last way. He says, I want to identify with Christ more completely. More completely. Even, even with his suffering. Even with his suffering. Oh my gosh. I don't think anybody rejoices in suffering. I know that uh, Roland is in over at Cedar Sinai right now. He's in a lot of pain. I'm sure there's a lot of things going on, but I doubt if he's singing a happy tune in the midst of this pain and, and stuff. There's a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, who's in probably a room next to his, who's been in that hospital for the last six months with leukemia, two rounds of chemo and radiation, and a recent uh, bone marrow transplant, and he can't swallow, and he hasn't been able to, I mean, it's just been hell. He suffered. And yet there is a sense of remarkable joy in the midst of stuff. Like some of you have experienced that. William Barclay wrote, To suffer for the faith is not a penalty. It's a privilege. For thereby we share the very work of Christ. You know, God in a remarkable way. Again, it's a whole different deal than the American dream kind of a thing. God uses sometimes pain to accomplish his purposes to astronomical, astronomical results. I was at a conference in Hong Kong. If you ever get a chance to go to Hong Kong, go. Fascinating place. Incredible airport. But, uh, you know, I remember Hong Kong was a stuff where everything cheap was. Not anymore. <laughs> it's, a, it's a remarkable place. And I was there with a group of Indonesian pastors and missionaries, and they, were, and they invited me to come and speak about, uh, about something. And I heard a missiologist, a Korean man, who was at Fuller Seminary, and he was talking about the, the growth of the church around the world. And he said, in the next 10 years, he said, in the next 10 years, the church is going to grow astronomically and in those 10 years, what we're going to discover is that 10% of the church growth is going to take place in North America, in the United States, and in Europe. 10%. 90% of the growth that's going to take place in the church in these 10 years already is existing. 90% of the church, astronomical most growth in, probably in history, is going to take place in Africa, Asia, and South America. 90% of the church growth is going to take place in those. And you know why it's going to flourish? Because of persecution. There are more people who are dying today for their faith than at any other time in history. Today. Today. Around the world. And somehow these people are like the first century going to their deaths with hymns. 
on their voices because they recognize there's something maybe you can't understand, maybe I can't understand until we experience it. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to ask us to die for him. I don't think that that's going to happen much in America. I think what Christ is asking us to do is to live for him. To live for him. But to do it completely. Completely. In the early 1950s, there was a gentleman by the name of Jim Elliott who was a seminarian. And he and a couple of his buddies were thinking about what they were going to do when they got out of seminary. And they, they were being courted for some of the great pulpits throughout the, the East in particular. And in the process of deciding what they were going to do, they said, you know what, we decided we're not going to do that, even though they won preaching awards and this, that, and the other. They decided that they were going to go someplace that no one had ever heard of the gospel before. And people said, Jim, Jim, that's foolish. You're a fool to do something like that. And he said something, wrote something. Somewhere it got caught that he said something that has, I've never forgot. Jim Elliott said in the face of that rebuke by somebody, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Never forgot that. And so off they went. Their target was the Aka Indians. Never heard the gospel before, never seen a white man before, didn't know any English, were a cannibalistic tribe, very violent. But they were convinced that God had called them to bring the gospel to them. And they spent a lot of time with their families uh, in, a, in kind of like a halfway place, and they would try and investigate as much as they can. They'd fly around that village and kind of look and take pictures, trying to figure out what was going on there. And they, for months, they try to get messages in there and this, that, and the other. And one day, they said, the only way we're really going to be able to do this is we've got to take the risk and we've got to go. And we, we came with their Bibles. They came uh, in these boats, these little, these little boats, he and, and two of his buddies. And they came up to the village and parked their boats and immediately were attacked by the village and spears and arrows and before they got a word out of their mouth they were dead a friend of mine is a pastor in Orange County and over his desk is a spear that was given to him by his father-in-law who was the pilot who flew in and got those bodies after they were killed And there's little things that were that are rolled up on those on those spears because they would take something of the people that they're their victims and they would attach them to their spears. And that's over his over his desk to remind him of the cost. And uh, all of Christendom in the United States uh, mourn the loss of Jim Elliott and his 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 brothers in that regard. The wives came home and, as you can imagine, grieved the loss. It was a very, very difficult time. Elizabeth Elliot, one of the wives, Jim's wife, decided some years later that the job wasn't finished and that they wanted to... She decided she was going to go back. That was her husband's greatest desire to see them know Christ. So she led a group of people back to that same beach. They brought a, some of you understood the language and explained to them that they were the wives of the men who came to tell them about Jesus and that's why we've come. And they were so taken back by what they said that they would come in the face of him killing their husbands. The chief invited him into his deal and he heard the gospel and he said, I want Jesus for me and for all my people. The whole village, the whole community, the whole tribe became Christians. Fifty years later, Saddleback Church, I think it was last summer, the summer before, invited that, pastor, that, that chief to come and speak at their church. 
told the whole story again of how for the last 50 years they've followed the Lord because of one man and one woman who dared to believe he is no fool, she is no fool, who gives up what they cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. I'm going to say it again. More than likely, there's not a person in this room, there's not a person in this community who's going to be asked to die for Christ, myself included. But all of us are going to be asked to live for him. Paul says, that's what I want. I want to identify with Christ completely. In good times, in hard times, in easy times, in bad times. And in the process, I want to do it to his glory. And I want to do it to the benefit of countless others. And I don't want to be surprised by the joy that comes from doing it. And that's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Remind me, because I tend to forget who you are, what you want of me, and how, how much you love me, how much you love this church, how much you love these people, these individuals. And Lord, I pray for those who are wondering about that right now. I pray that you give them the assurance of that. I pray that you would encourage every person that needs encouragement about following you today. That one thing that's been said this morning will be what they kind of hang their hat on this week. And Lord, for those who needed a challenge, I pray that you would burn that challenge into that and make them as uncomfortable as necessary to come to grips with their relationship with you. And that you do that for their good and to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.